So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Hey, I'm Nate Larkin, here with my good friend and yours, David Hampton. Uh, David, time marches on. We're recording this uh, on the last day of March, 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, April is upon us. Allie and I are quite excited. We actually have a closing date on the house in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, Ah, two, two weeks hence, uh, so God willing. By the time another month is over, I will have uh, escaped Florida and will be back <laughs> and be back in Tennessee and close to you. And maybe we can start doing a few more of these face to face. Yeah, uh, I'm excited about that. That's that's a good thing. Yeah, um, you know, escaping Florida. I don't know that I would uh, be real eager to do that, but I guess after you've been there enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I I, I speak in jest. I. I I actually have really enjoyed my time in uh, northeastern Florida, up here in Amelia Island. Mm-hmm. Beautiful place, wonderful people. I'm close to grandkids, but but eager to get back to other grandkids in Tennessee. Also eager to get back, David, to face to face conversations with mm. my brothers and actually getting into physical meetings. I'm yeah. so grateful that you know this far from home, I've still been able to talk to guys on the phone, the guys that I you know yeah for. for for years I've been walking with. Yeah. Uh, I have had the chance to get into a couple of uh, meetings here and it's, it's kind of odd. It's like, <laughs> it's kind of like all of us are kind of a adjust- It's like we, we acclimated to virtual life. Right. Yeah. And now real life feels a little bit awkward. Yeah. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Oh, yeah. I, I have to tell you, I read an article uh, recently. I do some writing for um, some different uh, addiction recovery sites. And uh, sure, I sure, do some yeah. articles and things I'll write once in a while. And um, I had this um, a topic I was I was researching and I came across an article, uh, the recent article, I believe The Atlantic. And it, the title was, Why Are People Acting So Weird? And, oh, you know, yeah. like just put it out there. And and the article was about all the behaviors that we're seeing people just, you know, I mean, maybe it's new, maybe it's not. But, um, you know, the road rage that just seems to be escalating and the, you know, crazy behavior on planes and slapping, yeah, yeah. you know, TSA agents and, you know, just people 
losing their shit left and right yeah, yeah. all yeah, over yeah. people. And, um, and, and so, you know, the consensus is people on a Academy award show. Yeah. Like uh, yeah, yeah. Hypothetically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> As if we haven't heard about that. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just exactly that kind of thing. And the fact that it's not that it's normalized, but we're seeing so much more of it. And the gist of the article by this psychologist was that after isolation, when people are isolated for a long period of time, they lose touch with the boundaries and the rules that used to govern their behavior or they used to allow okay. to govern their behavior. And so social norms. Social norms. And so okay. the, the entitlement that has the potential of creeping in when you lose uh, your sense of, you know, why I wouldn't go up to that person and slap them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. for instance. Um, yeah. You know, when you lose touch with that, uh, when when you've been isolated and, and the things that are uh, your fears have been paramount and you've been ruminating and all this stuff that we do yeah, when yeah, we're yeah, yeah. alone, we get out, we're not in touch with the same things that used to govern us. He even went as far as to say even masks caused some people to feel disassociated from their own behavior. They were almost anonymous, you know. You know, I wonder actually about the psychological effects of all that mask wearing. Mm-hmm. The one thing that, you know, that I learned years ago and as a communication major in college and preaching major in graduate school is that, uh, you know, when we speak only six, I've heard it described eight to 12 percent of what we communicate is communicated by the words that we speak. Mm-hmm. So much of it is communicated by things like tone and pace, but very high on the list is facial expression. Right. Yeah. And and now we've been communicating and can't see each other's faces. Right. How much gets lost? How much gets misinterpreted? We, uh, you know, we hear the words through the filter of our own bias and expectation and wounding. Mm-hmm. And we don't get any corrective information. Mm-hmm. from a, from from a, a facial expression mm-hmm. and and then we react out of really out of our own experience rather than out of what's actually happening yeah well you know that um i think it was called the rest face uh, uh um, oh yeah you know the where the mother and the baby uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the the mother uh, that you watch the baby respond to the mother when the mother's engaging and smiling and talking to the baby, and her mm-hmm. and very expressive. The child responds when the right. mother shuts down and and is very stoic, uh, very yes. deadpan face. The child picks up that emotional cue and begins to try to to prompt the mother, yes. you know, to yeah, get yeah, 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 this yeah. this response. And I think that's very true because you know they're they're ways I've, I've been in, I've been with like a store clerk who's got a mask on. I've got a mask on. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. I would, when I walked up to that person, I would swear she was having the worst day of her life. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. uh, she, there was just a demeanor that I could felt like I could pick up. And then I heard her voice come out from behind the mask and she was, well, how are you today? You know? Yeah, and yeah, I'm yeah. like, oh, well, you're not, you're not so uh, sour and angry as I thought maybe you were, but I have no idea because I can only see, you know, a third of your yeah, face. Yeah. yeah, yeah and, yeah, uh, yeah. but we pick up our social cues in so many ways that um, yeah, that, that cover up probably is a, is a big thing, but, but mm. this, this article is basically just reiterating the whole, uh, the whole importance of 
connection and that we were made to be connected human beings. And when we don't connect with each other, we lose, um, we lose our, our bearings. We lose our track of what motivates us, what governs us, what rules feel right. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm, and then when we mm -hmm. start to feel anonymous, we start to feel entitled. And, uh, so I just, I felt like it was just another, another time we, um, are underscoring the fact that we are social humans and and we were made for, uh, uh, connection. And when we don't, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna resort to our craziness. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I saw that. I saw that headline come through on the feed and something I was on, but I don't subscribe to the Atlantic. I didn't read the article. I think maybe I'll go back now and subscribe. That sounds like a fascinating read. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good. Uh, well, speaking of uh, fascinating conversations, you and I just concluded a talk with a, a couple of men out in California, mm. uh, and I found it such a, a stimulating experience. I'm going to be ruminating. I'm going to be replaying this conversation. I'm sure a few times. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Before and after this episode airs. Yeah. Because we're going to talk about some uh, deep stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. Uh, well, you know what? I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, uh, spoil it with any more. Uh, uh, I'm not going to spill any, beans, as they say. No, no more yeah. teasers, huh? That's right. That's right. That's right. I'm just going to go away and promise uh, the listeners that when we come back, they're going to love this conversation on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Oh, we have with us today, David, not one guest, but two. We do. Uh, uh, fellows with uh, whom I understand you are not unfamiliar. You've had some preliminary conversations with these men. And uh, yeah, so go ahead and introduce us. Yeah, our guests, uh, we have two, as you said, our guests today are Michael Nolan and Greg Vorst from the San Francisco Bay Area, a little a place called Los Cados. Uh, and they are part of Embodied Recovery. And um, I'm going to obviously let them tell us a whole lot about what that um, is. But it's a, a really great model for uh, folks that, uh, as you might expect, are incorporating uh, a whole body approach to recovery. And Nate, you and I talk to people a lot and uh, more and more emerging is the wellness, healthy, uh, physical side of, uh, integrating, uh, the physical into our emotional. Uh, David, you're not telling me, are you, that I can't just think my way to recovery? <laughs> yeah. That's what I want to yeah. do. Yeah. Come on. Just your, you know, I just need uh-huh. your best thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, just ignore no, whatever. We know where my best thinking got me. Right. I yeah. Know where it's going to take me. Okay. So, uh, how did you run into uh, Michael and Greg? Well, I got familiar with a little bit familiar with their work on LinkedIn, um, and mm-hmm. I reached out. Mike, Michael, and I, uh, I think, initially spoke, and then uh, I spoke with Michael and Greg on the phone, and uh, thought this would be a really good fit for our listeners. Fantastic. Well, welcome, guys. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank yeah. you for having us. Yeah, yeah, let us know if if you can uh, hear us all right, uh, or if there's there's any issues. Yeah, um, no, I think we're I think we're good. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. 
Plus, we yeah. also have a fearless, peerless engineer who can fix okay. it. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm curious. So how long have you guys known each other? How long have you worked together? And uh, yeah. and how did that come about? Those are fun questions. Yeah, those we're, are good yeah, questions. We're, we're celebrating a, a bit of an anniversary. Yeah, uh, five years. So uh, spring equinox, uh, five years ago, I moved up here. Uh, mm -hmm. from Los Angeles. It's for intensive outpatient programming. So oh, okay. it, it's a certain model of care. Uh, what we offer now is PHP, which is a little bit higher level of care. Okay. Um, and PHP but, stands for? Uh, so it's partial hospitalization. Uh, it's it's more of like an insurance term, but um, in recovery circles, it's just a, a day program or day treatment. Okay, so gotcha. gotcha. Speaking to okay. about 30 hours of treatment a week rather than maybe nine in a traditional IOP or intensive yeah. outpatient. So, yeah. right, right, yeah, right. Greg and I met right. five years ago. Uh, we learned some good lessons and uh -huh. had an experience where we were <laughs> like, you know, uh, why... Uh, why is it that maybe people are starting programs that are that are struggling themselves or maybe haven't sorted some things out uh, yeah. before they've started this program? And uh -huh. uh, we had established some really good relationships with uh, with our clients and with one another. And we started this conversation around what would it be like if we started our own program? Uh, now, at the time, it was more aspirational, and we certainly uh, couldn't afford to just take off a year of our lives and, yeah. and create a yeah. program. We needed jobs. Uh, so uh, we, we found positions at a residential program. And, uh, and so Greg became their clinical director and I was their program director. And gotcha. that really set this foundation for us to be able to create some of the ideas um, or maybe further develop the ideas that we had been talking about. Yeah, we really got this marvelous opportunity to, to try things out. And, uh -huh. and really have a chance to practice because we were in the leadership role. But the first um, the first organization that we worked for, that really got us thinking a lot about um, healthy and safe leadership. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, that yeah, company, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, that company, even though we were able to do a lot of good things there, it went bankrupt. Uh, you know, subsequent to that, we, we moved on to another organization, got to try out some of our ideas there and then launched in uh, 2019 mm -hmm. and we'll be celebrating three years of embodied recovery on, mm -hmm. on our opening date, which is 420. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we're, we're trying to reclaim the date for recovery purposes. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> we had our very first client, the program launched on 420 in yeah. 2019. And We've been uh, blessed to be in business since that time. Uh, it, just as an aside, a few years yeah. ago, my wife and I were in Amsterdam uh, and uh, in a hotel that put us on the fourth floor. Mm. And uh, <laughs> and 420, the room the room number had been stolen from. Oh, sure. <laughs> the neighbor, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. So I, I'm sure there's been like, you know, a bazillion highway 420 signs that have been, you know, stolen. And now, now, do you guys have personal stories of, I, yeah. I'm assuming you've got, you've got training, you've got therapeutic training. Do you also have yeah. uh, backgrounds in addiction and recovery yourselves? Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. So Greg and I have, um, maybe some different vantage points in terms of our, growth trajectory and maybe what mm -hmm. landed us here. Um, I, uh, I struggled with addiction earlier in my life. Um, I, 
I went to treatment when I was 20 for the first mm. time. Uh, I remember I had gotten into trouble. I was growing, I, I grew up all over the place, but I was living in uh, outside of Baltimore, Maryland, uh, in Towson. And I had an apartment and my life was getting pretty hectic and I was using and I got arrested a few times and uh, had to do a diversion program and stop smoking weed. And I didn't. And so uh, (laughs) anyway, so my dad got a job out here. Uh, I came to the Bay Area with my family and uh, was told that I needed to do a residential program uh, if I wanted to avoid further legal consequences. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. I went into a program 20 uh, told them that I wanted to have a drink and celebrate my 21st birthday. They said that, uh, do you not understand why you're here right now? I said, what do you mean? Drinking was never my problem. They said, yeah. I don't think you get it. Uh, you should probably stay longer. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. I don't want to have a drink on my 21st birthday. I, I get it now. And so I left. I stayed sober maybe a couple months after that. Yeah. Uh, relapsed with the, my cousin eating a burrito and having a beer. Um, yeah. And then anyway, it, you know, things just sort of spiraled, went to treatment a few other times um, and then found a, a program in 2007 called the Sequoia Center. Uh, they were an organization created by a man named Doc- Dr. Barry Rosen um, in uh, Sequoia Hospital. This was in the Redwood City area, so the peninsula. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just had this experience having been to treatment a few other times that something felt very different uh, about going there as a client, just the, the energy of the space. I, I didn't want to go. I wasn't like, yay, you know, time to mm-hmm. get sober. It was like, yeah, yeah. here we go again. I have to do this. This sucks. Uh, but just that experience of being seen and held and cared for and, and challenged and not being let off the hook for things was, uh, uh, it, it wasn't this experience that I previously had, where it was like, uh, if you're being, if you're being challenged, you're bad, uh, uh-huh. and if you're being, you know, praised, you're all good. There was just this very black and white sort of view of things. Mm-hmm. They they really held both at the same time, right? Like that we really do care about you, and these things need to change. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that was August eighth, two thousand seven. Got sober, uh, and then went back to school and wanted to pursue working in uh, in addiction treatment. And wow. was fortunate enough to to uh, be hired back at that program at the Sequoia Center, um, and then you know I think we maybe caught you up to speed a little bit before that, but um, I don't know if that's speaking s- too much about. Uh, no, that's fun, awesome. But yeah, yeah, yeah. How about me. you, Greg? How, how did you wind up in the field, Greg? Yeah, mine is uh, kind of a winding path of you know, I certainly, <clears throat> while I was on it, I had no idea where it was headed. Uh-huh, uh-huh, it wasn't uh-huh. until many years later that a lot of the pieces made sense. But I think what might have landed me in this work, one of the the big things was I had had a surgery when I was 18 that uh, that didn't work out well. I, th- I think I could have fought in in a lawsuit as a malpractice because mm-hmm. they did something in an exploratory surgery. They offered me choice A and B. And when I woke up, it was C. Uh, and oh, C wow. was never discussed. Uh. And it ended up being very uh, interest to me, and it was contraindicated. So uh, I was only 18 at the time, but that um, produced, and the, the fallout of that physically, um, you know, my physical well-being was how I was, um, in a sense, really coping with the stressors from my early life. So once that uh-huh. was robbed of me, I was left in this um, pool of, depression, anxiety, and all these feelings, which I think 
being with them over the years really helped in the development of our um, mental health track. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, so, so with that, the underpinnings of that, I, uh, I was in the performing arts for a number of years. I sang opera and wow. I had a lot of spiritual aspirations and a lot of affinity uh, for connection in those areas. And I would say in, in some sense, um, I had a, like a primary addiction to uh, spiritual seeking and mm -hmm. getting high off of that kind of thing. And there was a, a really, um, like, it took me a long time to see it, but there was this uh, really uh, gross display of how it wasn't integrated into my life, how mm. I would have these high points. And then my immaturity was what really shined through in, you know, my day-to-day -day living. Mm. And so I, I'm fortunate that I didn't, um, I didn't have, I didn't struggle with any addiction to drugs or anything like that, or have any interest in that. Um, I guess I would be in the 12 step circles. I'd be what's called a normie, <laughs> but I was screwing up my life. Um, you know, with the absence of drugs, I was figuring out every way imaginable yeah. to cause problems, self-sabotage. And, uh, I think, you know, the, the what as I went deeper into sort of my spirituality work, I began to see there was this area that was missing, and I didn't know what it was because I I knew about the the rooms, but I didn't know that there were ones uh, for anything other than substance use. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So um, when I <clears throat> decided to, I, I I sort of transitioned from uh, performing arts to healing arts. I was a nutritional counselor, then I taught um, a Korean Taoist form of yoga for a while. And then uh, I entered into this domain about emotional recovery. And I, mm -hmm. I, I learned about sort of inner child work and decided to go back to school. And, uh, and then I got into the rooms uh, for CODA mm -hmm. and ACA. Oh, and wow. That really, doing that work, uh, really, in a sense, uh, helped me to maybe ground some of the energies that I was you know, really trying to capture on the spiritual front uh -huh. mm -hmm. and uh, bring some integrity to my life. And mm -hmm. uh, the years subsequent to entering that, it's just been uh, awesome to see the way that relationships can work out, mm -hmm. the way that business life can work out, friendships, uh, family life. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so, and, and I, I, maybe that's a fun point to start is just to say as a center, what we're really, um, uh, really focusing on in some some respect is uh, being able to capture, um, gosh, I'm losing my train of thought, but uh, not just, uh, oh gosh, uh, <laughs> sorry, like, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, is it like the, the bull ring pieces or like the physical, emotional, spiritual pieces? Yeah, sorry. I, I, I think I got, <laughs> I, I just had a moment of getting nervous and self-conscious. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. To hear about all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, what I, what I wanted to say is um, maybe this piece about, about the uh, emotional sobriety being foundational for spirit. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And just, uh, you know, in the rooms, there can be like this ceiling uh, where people might get, get sober, which is a marvelous, really a marvelous thing in life. And yet the underlying personality and some of the pieces that recovery would really point to might not get, get sorted out. Mm -hmm. And then in the spiritual communities that I was a part of, there was this real missing piece about groundedness 
Some of them were struggling with addiction, many with codependency. So there was yeah. this real need for recovery in the spiritual communities and, yes. and maybe some spirituality, uh, greater sense of spirituality and possibility in the recovery communities. And our meeting in some mm-hmm. sense uh, really kind of, uh, I think, was uh, was engineered for us to bring those those pieces together. Yeah, that's oh, where many wow. of the, the the origin conversations started from. Was this was this idea of uh, where recovery was lacking in some of these spiritual communities, and where in the recovery communities it can feel like um, as long as I'm not drinking and using, things are good enough. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, what does it look like to move into something? Uh, more empowering, uh, more creative, uh, more purpose-filled. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, and then the sense of really embodying and living that out. Yeah. Uh, and the body piece, which each of you named at the front as being so crucial, um, that's front and center in our work. Our work is largely um, looking to get some kind of felt shift rather than just an idea or a concept. Yeah. Yeah. That somebody's yeah. really feeling something from within that's distinct from their experience before. Um, and then we're, uh, we're utilizing all kinds of experiential work mm-hmm. uh, as well as the Sundo, which is a, a daily practice, uh, body centered and uh, breath work. Yeah, we're yeah. a very practice centric culture. Uh, so we do this practice called Sundo every day. Uh, so Monday through Friday, both the addiction track and the mental health track, we have two separate programs. Uh, mm-hmm. kind of operating at the same time. Uh, they both engage in this practice. One has a practice at 8.30 until 10.15, and the others go in 10.45 until 12.30. Um, and it's about a 40-minute uh, silent meditation through a series of different postures, uh, each maybe more challenging as they, they grow in their practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it works on a, a, a belt system. So the more practices you do, uh, the more challenging and rigorous the postures become. You mm-hmm. level up in belt uh, and then move into some different postures. And and so uh, in total, I think it's maybe like a 30-plus year endeavor <laughs> that we're asking. Yeah, to <laughs> <find out. laughs> it's, a, it's a lifetime learning should, yeah. should somebody want it. Um, yeah. And, and the basic, uh, and then I want make some space for you guys to ask questions, but the basic uh, model, it's teaching people how to regulate from within through the lower belly breathing, developing um, an awareness about how to get into the parasympathetic nervous system, Mm -hmm, right? So mm -hmm. we're teaching people how to um, develop that and come back to that home base when they're thrown off. And then Sundo is teaching them to stay in that while challenged, while facing adversity from different uh, vantage points, which is a really good model for w- what we meet in life. Sure, uh, sure. Yeah, and as much as there is this more expansive part of this uh, tradition, we're by no means telling clients that they need to, you know, commit to Sundo for the rest of their lives. It's just uh, in the ways that we've been applying it to the work that we're doing with both uh, folks that are struggling with their mental health and addiction. Like Greg is saying, it's it's been more about. Um, regulating the nervous system, uh, getting them more in touch with their inner world, uh, how they come to avoid being present with themselves, uh, mm-hmm. and trying to make attempts at recognizing when I'm going away from center uh, and trying to get away from myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So very low to the ground. Yeah. yeah. Well, friends. David and I are pleased to welcome to the podcast 
a new sponsor, Soberlink. And we're positive that you're going to love this tool for managing your alcohol recovery. In early sobriety, we often focus on what we're losing instead of what we're gaining. Soberlink, you're gaining increased accountability, a deterrent against drinking, and a tool to help you stay connected with people who care. Uh, Here's what it is. It's a really high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition. It allows you to share your sobriety in real time with loved ones. In case there's ever a slip, your treatment professional or anyone else you've chosen to be in your recovery circle will know immediately. Uh, More important than the technology is the brand. It is part of Soberlink's mission to break the stigma that surrounds addiction, which is why they partner with Positive Sobriety Podcast and many others in the recovery community. It's also why they specifically focus on using alcohol monitoring as a recovery tool, not for criminal or recreational purposes. There there isn't anything like it on the market. Well, together we've developed a guide called Tips for Keeping a Positive Outlook on Sobriety. And you can download it at www.soberlink.com PSP. That PSP is for Positive Sobriety Podcast. On that page, you'll also find a form to request $50 off your purchase when you're ready to try Soberlink. What would you guys say are some ways that people can anticipate uh, experiencing the uh, the the shift? I guess in their in their bodies. Like what what are ways people are are actually noticing um, something more than just the conceptual models sure, yeah. of of recovery? Yeah, yeah, that's an awesome question. Mm-hmm. We've uh, Maybe you're thinking about the same mm-hmm. same thing I am right now. So there have been over the years, there have been all kinds of um, awarenesses moving from uh, really kind of straightforward stuff to of of like feeling tight and uh, kind of centered up here. Like we were talking about living in our head mm-hmm. uh, and, and carrying a lot of tension here um, and the mind really being centered here. Sundo's working to come down to the belly uh, to to really uh, move our consciousness here. And when that happens, our shoulders become looser. We can, uh, experience more sort of freedom, spontaneity, things of that nature. But, uh, really big that's, that's happened of late. Uh, there was a client who presented, um, with, uh, really complex sort of pain disorders that were diagnosed, Mm -hmm. um, here, uh, at Stanford and, uh, was advised not to do all of these different activities in life, same individual was needing to have um, like surgery. surgery on their jaw. Mm. Uh, oh yeah, it was so clenched, mm. right? Yeah. And and that's a kind of a holding pattern that's um, most likely or or could be connected to something that's going on with psyche, mm-hmm. right? And so um, and this yeah. person had a, a pretty significant history yeah, of trauma. trauma. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of uh, spiritual abuse. Mm. Uh, yeah physical and sexual abuse and just uh, a lot of really difficult things, uh, in their past. And, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> but presented with a lot of anger, right? A mm-hmm. lot of defenses, a lot of guarded sure. uh, energy, yeah. and um, wanted to like shoot down every idea and you know make you uh, an idiot for for thinking that any of these things would be useful. Yeah. Um, and so initially, a lot of the work was really about making a, a safe space for that confrontation to be allowed. Whereas yeah. I think a lot of other programs that this person had gone to, they could really sense in the clinician like this, you know, like, Terrified. oh, no, like, yeah, 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 what's yeah, coming yeah. at me? <laughs> yeah. And and um, kind of be nice to them, but from mm-hmm. a place that's not in service to their mm-hmm. their recovery. Uh, and we're not talking about being mean either, but just being yeah. clear. Being, right. being directive and and noticing what's what's happening, but but uh, this individual has been extraordinary in their work, and um, they've recently been uh, let known, you know, that the not only they not have to have a surgery, but the jaws in place. Wow, uh, the alignment is healthy. They struggle with night terrors. Uh, their mm-hmm. sleep is sound now. Yeah. They're waking up with peace, uh, a real sense of well being. I think uh, it's fair to say uh, people, you know, like the adage in 12 steps, it works if you work it. Right. Mm-hmm. The same is true with Sundo and the things that we're offering here. So when people really um, are willing to get on the floor and practice every day, which is our requirement, and then some people are even bold enough to do it on the weekends when, when we're not here, mm-hmm. um, they really win and they win big. Uh, and yeah. this person, you know, and many struggle with social anxiety, particularly in the mental health track, mm-hmm. um, that can be really strong to the point that it's crippling, like they can't hold a job. Yeah. Right. Now these people are uh, perhaps excelling in their job, excelling socially, enjoying connection. So mm. there, there's all these different markers, but, um, but a lot of it has to do with just this capacity to learn how to breathe and self-regulate and, and be in our center. Yeah, well, and it's also maybe to to pull another recovery cliche that you know recovery is a process, not an event. Mm-hmm. Right? That, mm-hmm. that this isn't something where you know yeah. all of the sudden th- this person just kind of woke up and said, "I'm great now." Uh, mm-hmm. They they the really many, made many this steps. huge yeah. commitment to yeah. t- to stay in this despite how uncomfortable they were at many points along the way. So uh, just they gave us a lot of their trust to really support them through this process and. Uh, and so we've had a number of people that have have struggled in different ways, but this one in particular has has been uh, so transformative, just so apparent. Um, mm-hmm. What uh, an amazing change has happened that it's uh, it was a fun example to, yeah. to refer to. Yeah. yeah, but you know, having worked at a lot of other programs that um, have a solid educational foundation and they have a lot of good things to teach. So this isn't like all of these other programs are bad. I think Greg and I just had these experiences where, um, so many clients would feel good in the center and then they would leave and then, uh, they wouldn't feel that sense of being held or, Mm -hmm. uh, how am I supposed to know which coping skill to pull from when things get difficult? And so we're not looking to just teach these folks uh, new ideas about living, we're really wanting to give them avenues for practicing some of these ideas um, and also be confronted on the ways in which they don't want to change. Uh, I think that a lot of uh, programs will um, will be excited for someone's, uh, what would you call it, someone's expressed willingness to do the work mm-hmm. and just roll with it and not want to explore the parts of them that aren't bought into the process. Uh-huh. And for us, that feels, <laughs> yeah. that feels yeah. really important uh-huh. to say, look, we hear the yes, that's great. 
and, and I'm, I'm sure there's a no in there somewhere. What mm-hmm. is that no? Mm. Uh, and that's been really useful too. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, now, I heard you mention the T word a little while ago, trauma. We know that trauma yeah. is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, lies at the root of most addiction, if not yeah. all addiction. Uh, we know, thanks to uh, Bessel van der Kolk, that the body keeps the score. Mm-hmm. Um, how explicitly does trauma work? Uh, does trauma emerge in the work and the therapy you do? Um Pretty explicitly. Yeah. 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 It's, um, you know, there's a lot of vantage points where it's being touched in our center. Mm -hmm. Uh So, um, so the, uh, we've offered for a long time cranial sacral therapy, which is, uh, if, if you're not familiar with it, it's another vehicle via touch to, Mm -hmm. um, to get in touch with the nervous system and begin to support somebody to self-regulate. Yeah. Uh, often, uh, not unlike in the work in, in Sundo, um, as you go deeper in that work, um, the trauma is stored and like you were saying, held in the body. Yeah. And so, um, as we begin to, um, let's say continue to do this belly breathing, for example, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, all of the meridian systems and all of the energetics of the body are passing through here. Right. So in some way, by touching this and continuing to grow up the energy here, yeah. eventually we begin to touch all of these places. Mm-hmm. And slowly over time, if there's enough safety and trust mm-hmm. and being seen, mm-hmm. those things begin to slowly um, unwind. And then there, there can be this marvelous opportunity, this window that opens for an emotionally corrective experience. Wow. So, I'm touching that thing and feeling everything that I felt yeah. while being held in the presence of love yeah, yeah. and having a different um, vantage point into that experience right? while yeah. at the same yeah. time getting to have some emotional and physiological release from that. And, and so that can happen in the therapy room. We do a lot of inner child. We have a beautiful group called inner child, inner voice. Uh, um, mm. We have uh, this marvelous 12-week uh, healing through creativity uh, program. So it it can happen in any of the groups. It happens in the individual sessions. And um, like Mike was speaking to, this sense of there being a process, um, it's not – so I've seen sometimes in the popularized TV shows where they want you to just sit down and start talking about your tra- trauma and, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. let's just, yeah. like, talk it out. And yeah. because we've named it, we've – you know, all of a sudden now yeah, our trauma. We've tamed it, right. Yeah, yeah it, it's really, not, in my experience working with people, it's not like that. And as a clinician, you need to be able to listen um, mm. to the process and and sort of gently be holding someone as that opens. And there needs to be enough safety and trust and seeing, and even to help people um, because they can be in really distorted places uh-huh. when they're re-experiencing trauma. So yeah. there needs to also be, uh, somebody there to help them sort out those pieces, which again can be very emotionally corrective. Yeah, it's it's yeah. a really intricate, delicate uh, dance that's being done. And even thinking about uh, challenging someone's distortions in the face of their trauma work, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's like you know, well, you can't do that. Like, yeah, you know, look how uh, sad they are. Right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They're distorted. Yeah, and there's a lot. Uh, I think, uh, I think there's 
perhaps a lot of going with distortions mm -hmm. in the field where maybe a clinician doesn't feel strong enough in their own uh, sense of codependency. Maybe they want to be liked. Maybe yeah, they yeah, feel yeah. frightened by the yeah. conflict. Yeah, um, yeah. Maybe, you know, there, there can be a lot of smoke and mirrors in addiction. So maybe they're hoodwinked. Uh, they're not yeah. seeing uh -huh. it. But yeah, there yeah. are ways in which we can be pulled into the system uh, of the client. And then by virtue of that, really not be of service to them. Yeah, right. And, and they're really, uh, maybe their ego on some level is saying like, damn it, I don't want this person because they're too present. They're too confrontational. They're too real with me. But on a soul level, Mm -hmm. that person is begging for somebody to show up uh -huh. mm -hmm. like somebody who will finally be real that I can trust. So I've had people, you know, Mike and I have had people come in here who have, you know, been to many, many excellent programs and centers and they're shocked when they hit the floor here because, Oh my gosh, you know, you're, you're going to talk about that or you're seeing that uh -huh. <laughs> nobody yeah. would really uh, challenge that. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, but, Mike and I were really fortunate. Both of our, we've had a lot of mentoring, but our mentors were of the type that were, they had this kind of courageous love mm -hmm. that was mm -hmm. willing to get in there and hold us accountable and help us see the parts that were active in us that weren't really of service mm -hmm. uh, to, to ourselves and our lives, that we were screwing up our lives. And they really helped us uh, begin to see those pieces. For sure. And in the ways that like, um, you know, they, they talk about the dysfunctional family rules, like the don't talk, don't trust. Don't yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. There were just a lot of times where we'd seen that modeled at centers where um, uh, difficult clients would, would bring some problem behaviors, but the team wouldn't be really talking about it because if I talked about it, then I would have to address it and I don't want to, or I'm assuming the therapist is going to deal with it later and yeah. maybe I'll put a note in their chart, but I'm not going to do much beyond that. Uh -huh. and, and so, <laughs> you know, there were times where Greg and I, we, we would be talking about uh, a specific team member and we'd say, you know, yeah, we really need to tell them that they need to do this and that. And then we would leave thinking like, okay, it's done. We, we, <laughs> we talked about it. And it would yeah. never happen. And so we actually created this kind of rule that we would, you know, say to each other, text me when you've completed on that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because a lot of times it would feel like because we had a really passionate conversation about yeah. it, something was done. But those conversations are so hard and they take a lot of integrity uh -huh. and it takes a willingness of the, the therapist to really bear the brunt of the reaction mm -hmm. uh, of the yeah. client. And um, and I think a really skilled therapist is somebody who can do that and not take it personally. Uh -huh. Yeah. And really be available to help the client because it's it's really a marvelous opportunity for a client to get angry, to get accusatory, to do all this stuff and to have the therapist not react to it, not mm -hmm. take the bait and yeah. be this loving, safe presence with with uh, which whom you can express anger, uh -huh. express yeah. feelings. And so that can be, again, a really emotionally uh, corrective, corrective experience. Now, you've used that. That phrase just is ringing my bell. Emotionally <laughs> corrective. experience. Yeah. yeah. Because that flies in the face of uh, what I think in recovery circles and therapeutic circles sometimes is just kind of this popular misconception that an emotion is mm -hmm. always true and always right and always correct. Right. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. So uh, look, the, the the experience of the emotion in a given moment is certainly not wrong for it being what it is. Right. right? 
Um, yeah. but, but where it's coming from, right? Yes. Like the, the, the fuel for that emotional experience <laughs> right, right. could be a lot of different things, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. when we tell someone uh, that, hey, you know, uh, this is the third day in a row you've been late. We really need you to uh, to sort something out to get here on time. It's really important. And they say, how could you? You know, that's so rude of you. And, you know, it's not that yeah. big a deal. And calm down. There's nothing wrong with their anger. It's fine that they're angry. Right. It's just um, that their defenses against being held accountable is what we're looking to work with and support them through. Not right. like, say, don't be angry. Right. Mm-hmm. right. You being angry is a problem, but right, right, this right. emotionally corrective experience concept is worth talking about. Yeah. Well, and, uh, in, in an incident like that, perhaps the client and maybe us at different times, too, we, we might have come from uh, a background where authority was authoritarian. So the emotionally corrective part of that experience mm-hmm. could be to experience healthy authority. Yeah, but yeah, I might yeah. have this split based on where I grew up, where all authority is bad. Uh-huh. Right. Well, yeah. that might make sense if I came from an abusive environment where authority yeah. showed up like uh-huh. that. But if that's the concept that I'm running on in life now as an adult, I'm going to be screwed up. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. that's not going to help me because I I need healthy sources of authority, mm. uh, and, and that's going to help me grow. And that authority and containment it needs to be recontextualized and re-experienced, and that's. When we when we talk about the felt shift, mm-hmm. that's what we're really looking uh-huh. for. And somebody will have a real grieving process around, oh my God, there's a loving presence that's telling me no. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they need to go through that. And that's uh-huh. incredibly powerful for their journey. Yeah. Uh, and that's often the uh, the shoes that we're stepping into. And, you know, uh, we don't just jump right into that there is sort of mirroring and seeing them where they're at mm-hmm. uh, and acknowledging their experience and then also offering the challenge and holding them accountable and doing sort of the next steps of the work mm-hmm. wow. and do you guys find that um as therapists when you are mm. experiencing somebody coming back and they are combative and defensive and they're you know kind of uh putting up a big barrier there that that's really where you need to camp out I mean, is that so? I'm not a therapist, so I'll let you yeah, answer yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so so a lot of the early work isn't to take away the barrier; it's to raise awareness about the barrier, mm-hmm. to really see them. Like, wow, that looks really important to you. I can see the way you're protesting. It seems so meaningful to you that I get that uh-huh. um, mm-hmm. about your experience, and so a lot of the early work is about raising awareness. And the second part of raising awareness is not just that they're putting up these barriers, but to help them get the felt sense that that's actually part of their suffering. If uh-huh. they can get that, then then what's inside them, once they're in touch with that suffering, uh, the parts that are inside them that are seeking fuller expression will in time, you know, move uh, to to recognize that that's not a constructive force for them. And uh-huh. if, if there's enough safety and trust, mm-hmm. they'll begin to slowly let you in. But if they've conned you, if they've scared you, if if you're in their system, if you're trying to be nice and please them to get them mm-hmm. to behave a certain way, game's over. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's no there's no authentic shift that's going to happen. So, wow. you know, we have to we have to be um, in a sense centered enough and strong enough to risk that real genuine interpersonal conflict. And then as that's sort of met in caring ways, 
again, it, it all gets recontextualized. Well, and something <clears throat> yeah. important to maybe pivot to just the, the development of the team here as well. Uh, you know, the, the therapists, the counselors that we have working here, yeah. they're all paid to practice Sundo as well. So they're all practicing and working on themselves mm-hmm. alongside the clients. Um, they're so, girded in that. Like yes. there's no, it's, it's part of the job description. So every day, Every therapist, every counselor, every person that's on the team, Mike and I, we're all practicing each morning. Well, and so the wow. reason I'm bringing that up is because I think it, it can be uh, if if I haven't uh, done the work to get unhooked from my own codependence and my own shame and my own history of trauma, if I'm needing to confront a client on something and I know that what it is that I'm going to say uh, might stir up some upset for them or some hurt feelings or uh, threaten the trust in that relationship from their vantage point, I might be afraid to move in, right? Yeah. Or if I do and I get that response, I might feel guilty. Look what I've done to them when mm-hmm. uh, when Take I know that I've mm-hmm. done this work and I'm really coming from this place of support and compassion and real love that, um, that I'm really an ally in this. I'm bringing this up to fight for their life mm-hmm. yeah. uh, rather mm-hmm. than, you know, say something that might hurt their feelings and hopefully they don't get too upset and they'll listen to me because I know what I'm talking about. Right. <laughs> so it's a very different uh, a- a approach in that way. So to have the the staff practicing Sundo, uh, you know, doing their own step work, uh, going to meetings uh, in their own therapy. And we is, do process work too. As a, Yeah, as we a do team. staff process work. Uh, yeah. it, it all ensures that the the culture and the broader community is is held in this same energy where we're all moving in the same direction, all coming from the same place, and the whole team is singing the same song, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And that this was something that I felt as transformational in my own process, going through treatment as a client, looking for these opportunities to split and manipulate and get dishonest. And it's kind of like, you know, well, you know, dad, mom said I could have a cookie. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right. And so when, uh, when dad knows like, no, mom didn't say that, uh, then I think like, damn it, my game's not working. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, (laughs) in some respects, what we're wanting to create. Yeah. The safety of that container so that, uh, they'll be held by everyone and there's no, no opportunity to split. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, this sounds so attractive. It really, really does. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, now, uh, embodied recovery is not a residential program. Is that true? That's right. Yeah. So we're not a residential. Uh, we're, we do day treatment and uh, some intensive outpatient and outpatient care, uh, but we keep the census very small. So for both the addiction and the mental health track, we'll, we'll never have more than six or seven clients in a group. Uh, okay. Having worked at other outpatient centers that have up to 15 or 20 folks in a group, oh, uh, yeah. people can get really lost sure. in that. Sure. So we intentionally yeah. keep the group sizes small. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the, the schedule's Monday through Friday, eight 30 in the morning until three 30 or four 30 in the afternoon. And the program lasts about 12 weeks. Oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. And so it's a real commitment. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And we'll have some folks that maybe step down from that day treatment to maybe, you know, three or four days a week instead of that five day a week schedule mm-hmm. at a certain period of time. Um, but, uh, there's just so much information to teach so much uh, work to do with these folks um, that 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 12 week mark gives us a a long enough runway to give them the space to get comfortable in the community feel safe enough to get into some deep work uh, and then 
reestablish almost some new ways of responding to life that they can carry with them rather than giving them, you know, like a 30 day, here's all the information I can dump on you as possible. Yeah. 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 Good luck with your meetings. Uh Yeah. Yeah. And we love, I mean, like we love 12 steps, like this is by no means. Yeah. Yeah. We're crazy about it. 12 step work. Yeah. Yeah. 12 steps saved my life uh, for sure. So it's, it's more like um, it's a, it's a different context for the work. It's it's a different style of work, and we encourage all of our clients to get involved in some twelve step uh, work outside of treatment. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, if listeners are interested for themselves or for loved ones, what's the best way for them to reach you? So they can call the the main number. It's eight 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 three seven two three six one zero. Uh, they can also check us out online at embodiedrecovery.co, uh, not.com. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, uh, we've got like an Instagram and a Facebook and, and people can reach out to us there. But uh, typically just the, the main number is easiest. You can also email me at michael at embodiedrecovery.co. We awesome. also love, love to do tours. Uh, oh, yeah. It's great when people are in the area. They can come on up and visit us. And mm. one thing that's unique about our tour is we'll often uh, create the opportunity for them to practice with us and then oh, wow. follow that by a tour of the facility. Oh. So if you guys so, are ever in the Bay Area. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to put that on my list. Like a, it's on, you, you are now on my list. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Sounds like a field trip. Yeah. I think we need to. That does. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It really does. Do it. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. We'd love to have you. Well, I can't believe that we've already talked for more than 40 minutes. I have wish we, really? we had. We have. And I, I know. And I was uh, just thinking, <laughs> man, there's all these things I want to yeah. get to with these guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to have you back. Yeah. This yeah. It's been absolutely fascinating. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah. Oh, no. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you both. Yeah. David, Listeners, thank you for stay with us. Out. We'll yeah. be back in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And uh, Nate, that was a great conversation uh, with yeah. Greg and Mike. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I love this. Uh, I love this whole concept of uh, embodiment and recovery mm-hmm. and uh, practicing something tangible like that. I, I want to go to the Bay Area and, and let's uh, crash, a, crash a class or something. Yeah, although I will tell you the prospect of I, I don't know it sounds like ninety minutes, uh, two hours. How, how long? How long am I going to be in some kind of a pose on the floor? Um, yeah, it scares it scares the hell out of me, David. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I mean, I'm not nimble uh, no. either, and I don't know how um, how you know how agile you have to be, but I have a feeling that. You know, after, you know, I don't know, 30 or 40 years of good drink, and we're not the only people that might feel a little uh, impaired or or less than, uh, you know, less than agile out there in the middle of the mat. But um, but I love that. Yeah, I love that the whole concept of um, finding those places in your body where things are stored. I I I'm just really uh curious to have that experience i have a feeling mm-hmm. i somebody would you know it, it, when the right chakra got got mm-hmm. prompted i i could probably lose it <laughs> so <laughs> it's probably all just right under the surface oh man yeah exactly well uh 
we're uh, we're coming to the end of the episode already, David. Uh, I want to make sure that we remind our listeners of uh, of BetterHelp. You want to mm-hmm. talk a little bit about BetterHelp? I will. You know, we encourage people all the time to uh, reach out to seek uh, a voice that they can trust and find a person that they can uh, lean into and know and be known and all of that. And I can't think of a more convenient way to do it than with BetterHelp.com because mm-hmm. this is an opportunity to get a licensed therapist uh, uh, at the most convenient time for you uh, that can consistently hear you um, in the comfort and privacy of your own home, your office, wherever you're free to take a call and to, to FaceTime or to Zoom and uh, and to go online and, and access yourself to their help. They will take care of anything with you from, you know, life issues, depression, anxiety, um, you know, all the things that feel like we, that have us stuck. Mm-hmm. And uh, with betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety, you can receive a discount on your initial sign up, And also it'll help us know if our resources are uh, uh something that uh, people are availing themselves to. So mm-hmm. betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety, get the help you need uh, from your own home and unlock the, uh, unlock the future for yourself. Beautiful. Hey, and as always, we really value the feedback and the suggestions of our listeners. Uh, we read every letter that comes and you can reach us at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. Well, David, I guess that's a wrap for this week. Uh, it I've is. Sure enjoyed, <laughs> I've sure enjoyed and I look forward to our next conversation a week from now. Until then, I'm Nate. I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer, Rex Schnelli. Music by Rex Schnelli. Theme music by Matt Ulrich. Uh, Hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe by (laughs) Kathy Gifford. 